uh, what I'd originally planned on uh, this summer before we began to make up new plans about every two days around here at Lakeland um, was I really wanted to teach some basics about the Bible, particularly like the maps, you know, like the land and what centuries went with what, you know, because I was kind of getting tired of sort of running into things like now. So when Moses was in the garden and then he walked on the water and came out of the tomb, when did Abraham hand him that cup of wine, you know, or something like that? And you're like, what are you talking about? So I I thought I wanted to set the record straight, but we're going to take a little different approach because times are a changing in the world. And so we're going to jump in here. This is really, we're going to jump in uh, on this opening text out of the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bible, Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and then for the sake of time, 6 and 7. So Joshua chapter 4. Anytime you run into the book of Joshua, you know you're running into the, the coming into the land, or what's called the conquest of the land. So they've been wandering with Moses in the desert. Moses doesn't get to come into the promised land, but Joshua is going to lead the way into the promised land. So that means they're going to be on the east bank of the Jordan River and walk across it into the west bank of the Jordan River. And you probably know the term West Bank from watching the news and that sort of thing. And we're getting into this sort of thing today. So here we go. Joshua chapter 4, right there in your Bible. When the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, select 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them, take 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood, Carry them over with you and lay them down in the place where you camp tonight. And when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the Israelites a memorial forever. So keep in mind that the, red, the parting of the Red Sea is not the only time that waters get parted in the Bible. The, the Jordan River also gets parted when they come into the land. So, and also keep in mind, anytime you run into waters, like the mighty waters in Scripture, waters in ancient literature, including the Bible, is always a source of chaos and evil, okay? And it's always being tamed. And that goes for the Genesis creation accounts and so forth, too. Water is the evil thing. So, when the waters get split and people walk on dry land, that's a good thing. That means they're on firm ground. That's not exactly what I wanted to teach this morning. That's just setting up the sort of background of the thing. What I really want to talk about is this right here. Rocks. I want to talk about rocks. They carried 12 of these rocks out of the middle of the Jordan River and stacked them up on the West Bank. It's a rock. And rocks mark events. In all of human history, humans love rocks. We use rocks anytime we want something to feel permanent. A rock says, this is the place. A rock answers the where question. And if you ask questions about a rock, you get to the why question. Why, oh father, do we have rocks stacked up in the front yard? Because, oh child, Blah, blah, blah. We were making a memorial to something. That was the rock that I ran over with the car. Or whatever you you come up with, the rock marks something. 
okay? Rocks mark property lines, right? Drive across Kansas. If you're paying attention, at least the driver's paying attention, and you get out around Russell, Kansas, not only are there oil wells, but there are what? Limestone fence posts out there because they didn't have enough wood. So they just make those limestone fence posts, and there's still some of them out there. Rocks that mark the property line. They put barbed wire around them, and that's how they marked off the, the property, right? Rocks mark people. They mark all kinds of people. And then people stack them, they carve them, they'll worship them, and they'll throw them. Humans have a thing for rocks. I was once down at the current river, and I came upon one of our young men on a gravel bar, and he was just stacking rocks. And I asked, why? And he said, well, I just felt like stacking rocks. I, I suppose humans have this uncontrollable rock stacking neuroses or something like that. Some R-O-C-K in the USA. I don't know what it is, but there's some condition in the human soul that causes us to just want to stack rocks. So throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew people stack rocks off and on. You'll find it all throughout Scripture. And they're marking off their land from their neighbors and their enemies. So primarily rocks are used as boundary markers, all right, and memorials. The Hebrews are marking off boundaries between those other people and their people, their tribe and the other tribe. So if you could sum up human history in one word, it would have to be the land, so if you want to look all through the Old Testament, it's about the land. They're going to move the land. You know, Abraham's going to leave his home, and he's going to go seeking the promised land. Moses brings them into the promised land. Joshua moves across the river, and they're into the promised land. Land, 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 and it's all being marked by rocks. That's the way it works. That's what's happening. Most of the Old Testament is about this conquest of the promised land and then how it goes wrong if you, once you get into around 700 B.C., and onward with the prophets. Western Europe, North American Christians, therefore, when we read the Old Testament and we think about the land and we hear the Bible's account of what went on, we assume a favorable position for Israel and the Hebrew people about owning and possessing that land in the Middle East today. For the last 72 years, since Israel became a legitimate nation, right, after World War II, and even hundreds of years before that, Western Europeans have always read the Bible and taken on a favorable position towards Israel that they are the proper ones that are supposed to be in that land. Not the Canaanites, not the Philistines, not the Moabites or anybody else like that. Israel is the one that's supposed to be there, and they take that from Scripture. We favor the Jewish side. Now, the problem is, everybody... In the 21st century and even in the last century, we all know and understand that life is not so simple. We understand that there are Muslims living in that land. We understand there are Palestinians and they have a terrible time of it. The story has become complicated, highly politicized. These rock boundary markers are hotly contested and you'll find it sometimes on the front page of the news or back at least on the fourth or fifth page. Day in and day out, we live in a world these days that is not so simple as like Israel is top dog nation over in the Middle East. We hear about all the other people. We hear about the Sunnis and the, and the uh, Shiites within the Muslim world. We hear about all the political names, the Hamas and Hezbollah, you know, 
But these are all the descendants of the, of the uh, Canaanites and the people that lived in the land before the Jews came. And we kind of scratch our head and say like, well, wow, is this all really the way it's supposed to be that the Jews are the people who are supposed to be in this land, right? It makes it into modern day politics, right? Uh, President Obama during his term told Israel that he thinks they should move the boundary markers back before the 1967 uh, war where they took over the land of the Palestinians. And then President Trump came into his office and he said, "Uh uh-uh, Israel gets to do whatever it wants. Depends on which side of the aisle you're on, right? All this sort of thing going on. It's very interesting. So we who are readers of the Bible, what are we supposed to do about this? How shall we then live in a day and age where we know there are two sides to the Middle East story? Should we take sides? Or should we retreat back to the good old days and just listen to the one-sided Israel first story? Or do we righteously rampage for the new world order and preach that the land should be given back to the Philistines? Or do we just fall into you know the default position, which is like, who cares? I'm not worried about this sort of thing. It doesn't affect me. Just call it good. Let them go fight out their own junk over there and worry about their own rocks. I don't care, you know, because that's usually what we all do. The land Israel occupies right now is part of an original promise to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just simply making a biblical statement. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 7, first chapter of Deuteronomy, the Lord says, Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in Arabah. In other words, go take the land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River in the east, all the way back to Babylonia, that what became Babylonia. This was the land promised to Abraham that he was told to take. Old Testament scholars make quite a bit about how this was supposed to happen. How are they supposed to come into the land of the Amorites and the Canaanites and all the other ites out there? How is it supposed to happen? <clears throat> because Exodus chapter 23, verse 33, Exodus 23, important chapter, says, says this, do not let them live in your land, speaking to the Canaanites. Very clear. At least one Old Testament scholar, Joseph Colson points out that what was supposed to be destroyed were not the people, not the Canaanites themselves, but destroy all of their carved images, their rocks, and their Asherah poles, these worship totems that upon or located near were uh, child sacrifices. Unholy acts to a holy God who says in the commandments, do not murder. So Joseph Colson says they were supposed to change their culture, right? Get rid of the infant sacrifice locations and not the people. It was not supposed to be sort of genocide. It was supposed to be a corrective to their bad morals of those people there and their old practices. Exodus chapter 23, back on that important chapter, says this, verse 30. Exodus 23, 30. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of land. It's a slow push out. Come in, make your home there, begin to push them out of the land. All right? That's what it begins to say. They shall not live in the land. Right? So get rid of the sin and so forth. Another well-known Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, clarifies that the Hebrews were charged 
with replacing the inhabitants' culture with the Hebrew history and culture. In other words, assimilate them in. If they don't assimilate, at least in race and in blood, then assimilate in their entire cultural practice. Replace their culture. Including, and very importantly, a day of Sabbath, which makes you very, very much a Yahweh people if you have that seventh day of rest. Nothing defines a Jew more than anything than the Sabbath day rest because that's what God did in the creation and that's the way we are in our image of God to take a day of rest, the day where we do not create. Okay, so Brueggemann says we were supposed to, that they were supposed to come in and replace the history and the culture of the Canaanites and the Amorites and everybody there and institute then the Hebrew law, the Torah, come in and teach them how to behave because they had vicious laws in the more what you might want to call, this is a terrible thing to say, but in their pagan cultures, if you stole a loaf of bread, you got your hand cut off, okay? But in Hebrew culture and in in the Torah, you simply made restitution. It was a much more, as a matter of fact, our form of law is taken directly from the Old Testament from that sort of Hebrew covenant, okay? It's a much fairer than what was going on in the surrounding cultures at the time of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Philistines, especially, and so forth, okay? So Brueggemann is saying, institute in those people a new fair law and your history and culture, and the world will be a better place. Now, just to go ahead and say this, here we are, America, a people who have the Bible, and we're supposed to know better, we're living by this law, and yet our own government has made mistakes, right? Right? I don't think we're through making mistakes, probably, of course, by any means. Everybody, you should smile and smirk right now. Uh, But 150 years ago, was it not us in our U.S. government who handed out the smallpox-infested blankets to the Native Americans, to the indigenous people of the plains? Was it not us who slaughtered millions and millions of buffalo to cut off the food source for the indigenous people? Embarrassing moments. In, in our modern sensitivity about how to treat people. Very much so. People have not paid attention to this law even in our own day and time. Why? Because America wanted the land. Those limestone fence posts out there are not so innocent as you think when you put up barbed wire and get rid of the buffalo. All right, why am I saying all this? Well, here's the principle to walk away with. You see, as long as the Hebrews were not in power, as long as they were not top dog nation, they were very clear about what their identity was and who they were. But once they moved into the land, they began to compromise the law, the Sabbath, their identity, and they began to worry all about who's, who belongs on the land. They got possessed with stacking rocks. And when politics gets reduced down to who's in and who's out, it falls apart and destroys a people. But once the Hebrews moved into the land and became powerful, They began to forget their identity. 
and they began to compromise over and over. When the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, they knew who they were. When they wandered in the desert for 40 years with Moses, they defined out, they found out who they were. Even in exile in Babylonia, when they were slaves themselves, they knew who they were. They knew what they were supposed to be. They knew who their God was. They longed for it. But once they came into the land, it all fell apart. The Ten Commandments, the Torah, and the law began to get compromised. So here's what you and I can walk away with. You know, the funny thing is, when life is hard, when life is hard, and we're all wearing these, and we have racial tension in the country, and things are getting pushed around, it's a clarifying time. It's, it's, it's a clarifying time to pay attention to who we are as a nation, as a people. Not boundary markers of what party you're in and who's voting for what and all that sort of thing. It's identity creating time when you're in hard times. And this is what I want to start talking about for the month of July as we move toward that. Just personally, back when I didn't have anything and I was powerless, so to speak, when I was in my early 20s and I could pack my entire life in the back of my friend's pickup truck, I had a a suitcase full of clothing. I had three boxes of books, which probably told you a little bit about my nerdness. I had a guitar and a JCPenney stereo. In about five minutes, I could pack it all up with somebody's help and move to somebody else's house, and I did. Life was simple. I knew who I was. Life was clear. I went to work, and in my spare time, I did youth ministry with an organization called Young Life. Life was clear. I knew what it was all about. But eventually, you know, life's not so simple. I end up getting married, we go off to seminary, we start Lakeland, we buy a house. I'm 35 years old when we bought our first house. I'm way behind the times. All you guys already bought your house when you're in your 20s or something like that. We're feeling kind of weird about that. You know, but we're kind of getting with the program. After we get the house, you get the lawnmower. You got to pick the lawnmower, shop for the lawnmower, fix the lawnmower, get the washing machine. You got to fix that as well. Then you get the furniture. Oh, but the furniture now needs to be upgraded. Things get complicated. Shift the furniture down to the basement. That's where it always ends up, right? You know, unless you live down the Ozarks and then it just goes out on the front porch. Sorry, did I say that? I guess I did. All right, so, um, and life gets complicated. Like Israel, you move into suburbia and you get into your land. The foundation happens to be made of concrete, but let's call it rock. You move into your land, and pretty soon you got a 401k. And if you're a Christian, you're thinking like, am I compromising my ethics and my morality and the biblical standard? Because when I look at my 401k, I thought I was a pretty good dude for saving and stuff. But I begin to see that i got to have a whole lot of oil companies in that thing. And the oil companies, okay, well, they, we buy the oil so I can get gasoline and put it in my car which ruins the environment so I can drive someplace and get an expensive cup of coffee where some man and his children picked coffee beans for a penny and a half a day. And I suddenly begin to feel like I'm an oppressor just simply because I'm in the land. And I begin to compromise my morals and my ethics. So Lori and I are sitting there with our financial advisor and I say, so I don't really like some of the companies that are in our 401k. You have anything that's, you know, Socially conscious? Why? Yes, we do. Blows the dust off a piece of paper and says, we have this one, you know, this socially conscious 401k. Like, oh, okay, well, I want that one. 
okay, that's cool. They're kind of shrugging their shoulders like, well, good luck with that. That's not going to do that well. But actually, a couple of years ago or three years ago, it did really, really well and outshone everything else, and they didn't know what to do with themselves. They were scratching their head at the company saying like, huh, imagine that. Socially conscious stuff actually works every now and then. Nonetheless, if you looked at your 401k right now this afternoon, I bet you you would find something on there where you're like, oh, I'm not so proud of that one. You know, I'm not sure that matches with what I read in scripture about being compassionate and so forth. That's just the way it goes. When life is hard, things are clear. And when life is easy, we lose our type, our life's top priorities. Pretty soon we begin to compromise the law. That's when in the Bible, after they're in the land... And after when they were the most powerful nation in the Middle East around 1000 to 900 BC, King David, Solomon, all the world's coming to them. And then for the next 300 years, it falls apart. And pretty soon you got this major chunk of the Old Testament we call the prophets. And the prophets are decrying how terrible everything's come. They're even warning the people, if you continue to break the Sabbath and the law and treat people the way you're treating them, it's going to go bad for you. And sure enough, it does. And one of those prophets is Amos. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Classic prophetic message right here in Amos chapter 8. And, and um, this is what he says. Hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may make market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy with a a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat, the dirt and with the wheat. And the Lord has sworn, Amos says, the Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything you have done. Gulp. Those are harsh words coming from the prophet. Did they listen to him? No. Did it go bad? Yes. When all is prosperous, we all begin to compromise. I used to sit around the dinner table and listen to my parents who were 17, 18 years old, 19 years old during World War II. And the conversation was always very simple. We rationed everything. We rationed copper. We rationed rubber. We rationed steel. We rationed everything we could for the war effort. We knew who the enemy was. It was the Nazis. And we were fighting against them. And we were all in. We knew what we were all about. Right? And they were proud of the fact of what they did their whole life. Right? They fought for freedom and to get rid of an oppressor. Sociologists tell us that immediately within a couple of years after the end of World War II, America moved into this stage, this is a classic, uh, an official term for it, an age of ambiguity, which was the most prosperous time in American's history, right? Everyone had a car, everyone had a house, everyone was, you know, living the high life, right? Because we were top dog. Age of ambiguity. And I think American Christians right now in our culture with what's going on and what's been going on and what will come, we too are living in an age of ambiguity. We are unclear about who we are. I'm afraid we keep buying into rocks 
who's in and who's out. And in the words of one of my favorite farmer poets, Wendell Berry, he said, it's not so much who's in and who's out. It's a matter of who knows and who don't. Move away from who's in and who's out. Move towards a center. In business models, this is called bounded set and unbounded set. And the most brilliant business consultant in the world was Jesus. Because Jesus moved away from Hebrew, from the Israelites rock stacking towards a single loaf and a chalice. And he moved from bounded set to an unbounded set. Instead of saying, who's in and who's out? The Canaanites are out and we are in. The Philistines are out and we are in. Jesus breaks a loaf of bread, holds up a chalice for all to drink and gathers everyone in. I propose this should be, although no one's listening to me, should be the political solution for the Middle East. Not to say now, just reverting back and say they should all become Christian, although I think that still would be a nice idea. But to say, gather people in around a common thing. Christianity, and this is where I, you know, you know that I'm Christian. Christianity gathers in around a single loaf and a single chalice. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carry having burdens, and I will give you rest. Everyone is welcome to come in. If you wanted to turn this into theological talk, we would do much better to talk about the garden where Muslim, Jew, and Christian can all still gather at the creation. That we have in common. That would be a place to start. Remember, the garden never had a wall. (laughs) It had a gate. And it had trees. But it was really the whole earth. Jesus replaced the rock with a simple loaf and a cup. Everyone belongs. All the hated Samaritans, all the lepers, the extortionists, the adulterers, the unclean people, the marginal people are invited to the table of Jesus. This is our political mandate these days. I've been teaching this biblical mandate for 25 years, and I don't plan to stop anytime soon. And in this time that we're living, it seems even more pointed than ever. By the grace of God, I hope to even expand the table around here. And you must invite others to this table as well. You are the hands and the feet of Jesus to build this community of authentic followers of Jesus Christ around here at Lakeland. Heaven is brown, everyone. It's just as brown as it can be. You might want to get used to it right now. You may want to get used to it now if you plan to spend any time in eternity with Jesus. How should we do this and how shall we live? Drop the rocks, pass the chalice. If you want peace in our world, begin with Jesus. Not who's out and who's in, but who knows and who doesn't. And that's our job and that's our mission. Amen.